Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, November 22nd, 2021. Tonight, we at Commentary will and our um, supporters and friends will be convening at a ritzy New York hotel for the 2021 Commentary Magazine roast of Sully Soloveitchik. Uh, I, I, if you are listening and you're going to be there, please say hi. And if you're listening and you can't be there, I'm sorry you can't be there. And maybe next year you will come and enjoy yourself. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So there is so much going on. Uh, we have uh, Build Back Better passing on Friday just after we finish the podcast. Uh, we have the verdict in the Kyle Rittenhouse case. We have the absolutely horrific Christmas parade car driving incident in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Um, various other things. Uh, it's a this country is in a very bizarre state. A jury uh, listens uh, for two weeks to testimony in a in a case um, and uh, deliberates for three days and finds the defendant not guilty on five charges uh, in what was clearly a very considered verdict as they took three days to uh, to reach it. And uh, people who know absolutely nothing about the case, as is evident from their uh, opinion, opinionizing, shall we say, uh, in the wake of the case and stating all kinds of facts about the case that are not true, have decided that this is a terrible injustice showing America's <clears throat> disastrous condition. It's been a general matter of the um, social contract in the United States, except in very extreme cases to uh, understand, or generally in the West in general, that the jury system uh, in a in a in an adjudicated courtroom uh, requires modesty on the part of analysts who are not in the courtroom, or on the part of anybody who is not on the jury, to understand how the verdict was reached. And it is part of the social compact that we accept jury verdicts, um, because if we do not, and we decide that we just disapprove of any jury verdict that comes out in a way that we don't like, uh, then, you know, our our justice system is going to shatter from the inside. It's kind of the, the next step, though, um, because we're already at the point where we, we don't accept election results, right? So why wouldn't that creep over into how we how we view the jury system and Results so the trials. jury system proceeds, I mean, to be to be honest about, you know, the West and Western ways of being, the jury system precedes modern democracy. I mean, the notion of bringing together, you know, a group of theoretical peers to sit and adjudicate and have to come to a unanimous finding in order to deprive someone of their, you know, property, their liberty, you know, their ability to be in the world or their life, um, you know, this is a fundament of, of, of common law going back eight centuries or something like that. Now you can say, well, okay, so it wasn't really peers because women weren't on juries or, or people of color weren't on juries or it was only people with property and da 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 all of that stuff. But, but, the, but the idea remains constant no, I mean, yeah, well, and I think our current situation is especially egregious because the rot is coming from the top in terms of trying to undermine the process. So you have Joe Biden, who is a candidate for president, featured Kyle Rittenhouse's face on, on, a, on a campaign ad where he called him part of white supremacy in the country, which Biden claimed he was going to fight. So that was that libel. This kid had not even been tried yet, and he was calling him a white supremacist. And then you have the fact that after the when the verdict first came down, Biden said to reporters, you know, we've got to follow what juries say. I respect juries. And, and I I'll 
along with a lot of people thought, well, finally, I'm glad he said that because that's important for the left side of the aisle to hear very quickly. The, the not uh, what it took an hour. The White House issues a statement where Biden then says, well, I'm we know people are really angry about this. And then Vice President Kamala Harris had a similarly sort of, oh, this is so terrible kind of statement. That is, first of all, they shouldn't be commenting on it at all, except to say what Biden did at first, which is to say, look, this is a jur- the jury made its decision. This is how our system works. But they had to add that bit. They had to put that spin on it to satisfy their left wing, which is demanding justice, claiming that the way the justice process actually works because they didn't like the outcome and because, quite frankly, they don't like the laws that were being questioned here. They don't like the fact that a 17 year old can legally walk around with a gun. They don't like the fact they didn't like a lot of this stuff. So they instead of attacking those laws and talking about how to change those laws, they attack the actual process. And that's really bad. That's bad for our system. And I really, really don't like that Biden and Harris were, were piling on in that way. Uh, you know, I, I think, as people know who are listening, you know, I watched much of the trial. And um, I, I don't honestly know how the verdict could have come out any differently. The prosecution did not prove a case that Kyle Rittenhouse acted in a way that that denied him the right to self-defense. And it was only late in the case, with a late-breaking weird piece of evidence, a, a, a piece of drone footage uh, in which uh, one of the encounters between Rittenhouse and someone was caught in the upper right-hand corner of the image, um, did they decide to go with the argument that he provoked an attack upon himself? which they did not go with in the in the first couple of weeks of the trial for very good reason because they had no reason to believe that he had in fact a done this or b that it was a much harder case to prove because in each of the cases in which Rittenhouse fired the gun he had one person pointing a gun at him he had another person smashing him over the head with a skateboard and he had a third uh psychopath uh, trying to grab the gun out of his hand. In each of these cases, the case for his acting in self-defense was almost impossible to overcome and, in fact, was not overcome just as a matter of common sense. Though you can say he shouldn't have been there in the first place, which I certainly do believe. And I believe that a 17-year-old uh, who has not attained his majority is not somebody who even in his you know hopes if if you were to take him at his word and say he just wanted to go and help people um he is not he has not attained his majority is not a full citizen he remains a, a you know a minor in the eyes of the law and he shouldn't be out in the middle of a riot now i should say by the way having said that that i myself though with a very large group of people when I was 16 years old, was out in the middle of a riot uh, during the New York City blackout in July of 1977 when there was looting going on uh, across Broadway from the apartment building that I grew up in, um, and these stores were being trashed. Uh, our building had gone co-op. There were four stores in the you know at the at the street level on Broadway, and I and a group of about 15 adult males from the building stood in front of our building holding baseball bats. And it worked, by the way. No one, no one came. So on the one hand, I didn't have an AR-15, and I wasn't, I wasn't journeying, venturing into Riotville. But I did, you know, I did do that. Um, and so I have, I sort of understand, I, A, I can understand the impulse, and B, I do think you can say that, you know, he shouldn't have been there, but that doesn't that doesn't mean that he then surrenders his right to defend himself when he is being advanced on or being injured by a guy with a skateboard having a gun aimed at him by by this guy Grosskreutz or having the gun grabbed at him by a man off his meds 4 days out of a mental hospital who had sexually molested 3 children. That's just common sense. 
But isn't that also, I mean, part of the problem here is that the reason he was, the reason he went is that the cops had stood down in part during these riots, right? There was a, there was a whole issue with regard to whether or not these were protests, you know, mostly peaceful, et cetera, et cetera. And there wasn't enough of a police presence in this situation. And businesses were having to take matters into their own hands to defend property. And and I think, again, this speaks to why a lot of the the left and the progressive left in particular is unhappy with this verdict because to say that he behaved in a way that was acting in self-defense is to undermine the idea that these protests were just protests, that they weren't actually violent and destructive and harmful. Um, But they want to continue that fiction about the protests themselves. So that's another part of the puzzle. Now, the jury didn't know anything about either what Rittenhouse uh, himself had done, like he'd been into Kenosha earlier to clean off graffiti. They also didn't know the criminal records of his victims. Those things were not part of evidence. So they were looking strictly at his behavior in that moment in time, and they came to their verdict. So even the valorization of the the men who were killed is, is kind of grotesque at this point, but it's all in service to a narrative that doesn't make sense long term. Well, you know, there's been this objection, um, as a part of the widespread objection that you see on the cable news about about the decision, um, there's been an objection that uh, well the judge allowed the term rioters to be used in regard to rioters, um, but didn't allow the term victims to be used in terms of uh, the the three who were shot. Um, this is not unjust at all. The writers were writers. The people who were shot, you cannot call them victims when there has not yet, it has not yet been determined that there was a crime to be a victim of. Um, but so in the larger context, though, regarding the idea that they, that they couldn't have, that, that, that this was sort of the only um, seemingly logical determination to come to, some of the some of the objections that I've seen to this don't even uh, elide that they don't they don't they don't deny that that this was the right issue, but there's this complaint that, well, if a black seventeen year old showed up to a riot with a gun, we would be seeing a very different outcome. First of all, we don't know that it's hypothetical. I'm sure in some instances we might may, may see a very different outcome, and some we wouldn't. I don't know. Um, but secondly, does this mean that, that you're arguing that, well, because an injustice might be done in a hypothetical situation, it's unfortunate that an injustice was not done in this one? But this but is, that is oh, sorry. just that that goes to the heart of what I think we're, we're all talking about, because it's not as though every every trial, every criminal trial has creates this sort of condition. It, there's only a handful of them that. And they usually go spectacularly wrong for the for the prosecution. And I, we, we've been talking about this, and I can't think of one high-profile case with cameras in the courtroom that was competently prosecuted. And it occurs to me that it's probably the species of the problem or a symptom of the problem that the cameras are there in the first place. It's the intense public interest that got them there to begin with. You and also which prosecutors... prosecutors to overcharge. Right. The case, prosecutors they, feel the pressure to charge and therefore to they go start to charge Kyle Rittenhouse as an adult with multiple counts of first degree yeah, homicide. But to I'm a, thinking of Angela but, Corey, yeah. for example, in the trial of George Zimmerman, who bypassed the grand jury process in order to indict this guy just to get him in front of a jury because there was such intense public interest. And it was it was an unsustainable charge, but it was a response to public pressures. And that's the problem. Is that the and that's the, why the prosecutors responding to, to public pressures. And that is why the jury system exists. This is this is the key point that is so horrifying, which is these are not symbolic cases. They are cases in which there is an individual who is accused of doing a very specific thing or set of things in a very specific place at a specific time. And if you view this and say, you know, it would be very bad for this country if the signal were sent that it was okay for a 17-year-old to go around with a, you know, with an AR-15. So we better throw the book at him at, to send a message to every other 17-year-old. That would be, this is why we have individual justice. That's why we have a jury. That's why we have judges. That's why this is supposed to be insulated from the political process because politics is always about triage, right? 
politics is always about making large scale choices to help or you know deal with a large number of people. And when you are talking about a capital case in which this kid found guilty could conceivably have gone to the electric chair, insulating him from those political pressures is elementary justice. And it's why we do it. And it's why the system developed this way altogether, because it is the logic of the mob that is being denied by a jury, which is essentially a mini-mob that comes together under a set of controlled circumstances and is told it is up to you to make a decision regarding this person's entire life, and you have to do it unanimously. So whatever mysterious process there is where you go into a room and try to discuss this and however you all feel, you need to convince each other that either he deserves to be deprived of his life, his liberty, or his or his property, or that he doesn't. And it we insulate this from politics precisely to prevent the kind of disgusting garbage that has been coming out for three days about Kyle Rittenhouse, for whom I hold no brief. But if you found yourself, I mean, it's just... You know, it's like, there's Reese Witherspoon, okay? So Reese Witherspoon, who was in Legally Blonde, says, I don't know why it's okay for someone to go across, to get a gun, go across state lines, and then shoot three people, right? So A, he didn't get a gun. The gun was there in Kenosha. B, since when in the history of humankind is it illegal for anyone to cross state lines? And see, he didn't just shoot three people. He shot three people under a set of circumstances. And I only say this about Reese Witherspoon because Reese Witherspoon is saying, I don't know what's going wrong with this country. Reese Witherspoon just made a billion dollars selling her preposterous company to a hedge fund that wants to get into show business. You know, hello, sunshine. Billion dollar value at $900 million sale. And there she is scratching her head at the at the at the completely righteous conduct of you know jurors in Wisconsin. Like she she should go sit in her house in the Pacific Palisades and wonder at the fact that those people sacrificed three weeks of their lives to take on the responsibility of adjudicating what was going to happen to the life of a 17-year-old who they might conceivably have sent to his death. But this is why the celebrity uh, pile-on on this is so is, is kind of really egregious this time around. And it's true also of a lot of the political left commentators. Uh, Miss 1619 Project Nicole Hannah-Jones did this. You know, obviously Joy Reid and a lot of people on, on cable news did this. But they had to recast this as a victory for white supremacy, even though everyone involved was white. And to do that, they had to make these three guys who were clearly out the the three uh, people who were shot by Kyle Rittenhouse, the two who died, the one who survived, they had to recast them not as the sort of wildlings who went out there to, to wreak havoc and take advantage of a riot in a mob situation, which clearly, judging by all the video footage and the evidence we have, is what they were doing. Instead, they had to be protectors of black lives. And that conceit is also really obnoxious to the intelligence of the American people, because anyone who looked at that footage or followed the trial or read about what happened could very clearly see that these men were not out there protecting black lives. In fact, one of them was using a racial slur just as he kind of confronted Kyle Rittenhouse. So these guys were not, you know, fellow travelers, but they have now been retroactively brought into the fold in order to justify the white supremacy narrative. It's insulting to our intelligence. I mean, it's more than, I mean, so, you know, the interesting thing is that if you follow the conservative commentary, or let's say the sort of populist conservative commentary that was going on during the trial. There are various YouTube video feeds in which conservative lawyers uh, were commenting, and then there were comments next to them. And uh, if you go to the website Legal Insurrection, front, run by our, uh, my friend Bill Jacobson, um, there's a lot of commentary there. And the interesting thing there was that there was a peculiar effort, not a jury nullification, 
uh, but you know, which is which is when uh, juries decide that they're going to find in a way that is not congruent with any existing law, but because they want to send a message or how you know they that's what jury nullification is, uh, or they don't follow the judge's instructions or they don't follow you know proper criminal procedure. But since their view is absolute, they can rule however they want to rule. Uh, there was a lot of commentary about how the judge should declare a mistrial. That the prosecute, there were a lot of people on the right who were who had decided that they liked Kyle Rittenhouse, or they you know, were very concerned about whatever, or they their gun rights supporters worried that this is going to. They wanted the judge to declare a mistrial because of prosecutorial misconduct, and they were yelling and screaming about how bad the judge was and how terrible he was because he wasn't doing this and he should really do it and he could and he should do it. So there, it's not like the behavior was great on either side. So Judge Schroeder, who has been on the bench for 38 years, and by the way, for his troubles and labors, was trashed on Saturday Night Live this this Saturday night. Um, he was he basically said, ruled various ways. Right? He said you can't bring up the you can't bring up the records of the of the of the people who were shot. You can't mention that Kyle Rittenhouse once said four months earlier that he wished he, you know, he he could have gone somewhere with a gun. Uh, you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't use the word victim, as Abe said. But um, he was going to allow v- various things that the prosecution was doing, even though he was screaming at the prosecution out of the jury's earshot for pl- for coming up and crossing lines and maybe crossing lines. And so he said he was going to take under advisement the possibility of declaring a mistrial, but that he clearly wanted there to be a jury verdict. And he was right. And his almost four decades on the bench told him to trust the jury system and to believe that the jury system was the best way to go here. It is possible, had the jury come back with with one or another guilty verdicts out of the five charges that were levied, that he might have declared a mistrial after the fact uh, because there was some evidence of prosecutorial misconduct. But this this lack of faith in this elementary method of Western justice that is better than any other method of justice the world has ever known, even with all its weaknesses and flaws and the fact that, you know, OJ can be found not guilty and whatever you want to say, uh, has to be trusted or we are we are finished and the and judge did add- and liberal pop liberal opinion did not and neither did conservative populist opinion that's also my point they wanted the judge to trump the jury verdict I'm right sorry. no they, i mean i i think that there's a there's a uh, a similar misguided this misguided tendency on the right to turn Kyle Rittenhouse into a hero is first of all it's bad for Kyle Rittenhouse but it's not good for the for the general discourse either but I will say there there were a couple of uh, legal folks on Twitter who did some threads about whether self defense has been used by non-white people in situations where the a jury then decided that they were not guilty and the thread is extremely long including the same week that the Rittenhouse verdict came down there was an African American man who was acquitted of shooting at cops in self defense cops had come to raid uh, during a raid so it's it's not as if the system doesn't work for people of color. It does. But again, the narrative has to be that, it, as, as Abe said earlier, if this were an African-American, they never would have gotten off. But that's wrong because we have evidence that it's wrong. It happens every week in this country if there's a legal case and they get a good defense. Now, you can argue that the system doesn't provide top-notch defenders to people who you know lack wealth or or standing. And that's a different issue that, that can be addressed. But that's not what they're arguing. And I think it's that argument that really undermines our, our institutions of justice at a time when, and I think, you know, we said this at the beginning, at a time when a lot of institutions right now are not in a healthy state. Look, I mean, the ultimately, the whole point is that there is no case like this case. These cases are snowflakes. They have a fact pattern that is entirely unique to them every single time. Every single criminal case is a snowflake that goes before a jury. It is not similar. Now, criminal procedure rulings that are used in courts to adjudicate how the trial may go and what facts may be entered into evidence and what may not, 
those you use as your basis for trying to keep the conversation or the direction of the trial within boundaries of common sense and common law and constitutional rights. But by definition, nothing has ever happened that happened to Kyle Rittenhouse or that Kyle Rittenhouse did that night except that. You cannot, nothing is duplicable. Like he, he, one of the, one of the most interesting pieces of data is when he shot uh, Rosenbaum, he fired three times in 0.76 seconds, three quarters of a second. And the prosecution started and then dropped an effort to ask what his state of mind had been in the midst of the shooting, as though having shot once and then having shot a second time, a tenth of a second later, or, or you know, a fifth of a second later, his mind process had somehow shifted or altered. He was firing until he felt the threat had ended, and all of that took seven-tenths of a second. Think about how long seven tenths of a second is. It, you know, there, there I was. I said it, that maybe that's seven tenths of a second. You know, I mean, there is no fact pattern like that except here in, you know, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, on that night in two thousand, and that's it. And nothing else has ever happened in human history that, du- that duplicates that. That it's not like a chess game where every chess game has been played by somebody sometime before. It is its own thing, and that's why it has to be adjudicated in its own way and not become an example of anything. It's only when things happen like jury nullification that you can say, well, there might be a message here because 12 people got together and decided to do something that was beyond or outside the bounds of what was considered law and then we have to say well it's 12 people in this situation what in the culture in general may have inclined them toward that but not 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 in this case and and yeah we haven't even sort of dealt with just the nature of how of, of the loathsome commentary in which you know why what do you want to defend why? What do you want to defend them for? What What do you want to defend Grosskreutz, Huber, and Rosenbaum for? What do you want to do that? All you have to say is he shouldn't have been there. And then I do think, let me just, I'm sorry, I'm like rambling, but I think ultimately the thing is that this it, people who see this and saw it happen believe that no one should have a gun. Kyle Rittenhouse had a gun. His sin was having a gun. They were hopeful they could get him convicted on carrying a gun at the age of 17. But it turns out that in Wisconsin law, if you have a long gun, you can't get arrested for carrying a long gun for very obvious reasons, which is that people use long guns in hunting. And so you weren't going to, you know, this you don't write laws just to make it convenient for cops to arrest anybody they want to. So it's like, oh, you're 17, you have a gun, I'm arresting you. It's like, okay, you have a gun that has a barrel that's of sufficient length. I can therefore, the legislature writes a law and says, you would only really, in all most circumstances, be carrying such a weapon in order to hunt. And so therefore, I'm not going to, you know, find. So he wasn't guilty of the law. The law did not, you know, the law, the, the indictment was thrown out and should never have been brought because the prosecution knew full well that a 17-year-old who has a gun that's, you know, however many millimeters in length the barrel is, is permitted to have the gun on the streets. They were just um, throwing garbage charges at him to see what would stick. Can I just say on the question of why the, the so much of the commentary is about, um, you know, why everyone is so vexed about this. Um, the, 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 the line I hear a lot is that uh, this ruling will make it more likely that more irresponsible, reckless 17-year-olds will show up uh, to riots with guns. And I think that's completely valid. Um, Not that it should have any bearing on a a jury's calculus in a specific situation, as you say, John, um, but as a sort of something to be concerned about in the future. But 
it is not valid coming from people who spent, and I'm talking again about the the, the media uh, uh, commentators here, um, who spent months and months valorizing violent rioters, making heroes of them, um, and who and you could you could never question their motives in doing that. Um, how about don't show up and riot before you worry about don't don't show up. Uh, with guns to stop the riots. I mean, I think that's that you know that that's the last word. Should have been the first word, and it's the last word. And now I want to talk to you about our friends at the Acton Institute and their podcast. Um, that uh, Acton Unwind, which is um, which is comes out Mondays, a weekly roundtable discussion tackling current events. From the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty, this is this is one terrific conversation uh, hosted by Eric Cohn with Acton Institute experts, including Dr. Samuel Gregg, Reverend Robert Sirico, Dr. Stephen Barrows, and more in a weekly audio public square where news, politics, religion, and culture meet for an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. Refugees and border walls, woke celebs, socialist chic, social engineering, COVID lockdowns, if you get wound up over what's happening, this conversation will help you unwind and see the larger picture using the Acton Institute's unique perspective that connects good intentions with sound economics while working to promote a society that is secure, free, and virtuous, characterized by individual liberty, sustained by religious principles. To subscribe to Acton Unwind, visit acton.org slash commentary or search Acton Unwind on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are available. That's acton.org slash commentary to subscribe. And that same impulse, that same effort to connect uh, sound economics and religious principles and individual liberty is also the motivator behind David Bonson's new book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. You heard us talk to David on the Friday podcast uh, as he explained his, his effort, this uh, single page per topic, 250 uh, economic truths explored through quotations from great thinkers and explanations of of how these things work. David uh, told us that uh, he was concerned; he had grown concerned dealing with young people that uh, those of that a lot of young people uh, come to think about um, uh, economics and, you know, sort of the American economic capitalist system uh, solely through a perspective uh, brought to them by Ayn Rand and by libertarianism and that he believes that ordered liberty and the fundaments of religious faith are necessary undergirders for an understanding of uh, of uh, properly understood of, of, of economics as a as a description of how the world works and as a as a kind of prescriber of the conditions uh, that lead to uh, distortions in the ability of people to make a living and prosper and flourish, and that uh, a good economics properly understood is a is an accompaniment to the effort to achieve human flourishing, which is only possible with an understand a true understanding of liberty, ordered liberty, and faith. So that's David Bonson's. There's no free lunch, 250 economic truths. You can buy it at Barnes Noble. You can download it from Amazon or Barnes Noble or wherever. Please do so. Okay. So, uh, Build Back Better passed. Uh, 220 to 213, I believe, was the vote, something like that. Or was it 220? Interestingly enough, Noah's been talking about how. The last time Democrats were forced to cast a vote like this and then had their hats handed them later was the Obamacare bill in 2010. That vote was 220 to 215. I'd forgotten that. That was when Democrats had a 40-seat majority in the House or a 50-seat majority in the House. 35 or 40 of them voted against it. I mean, it was one of those gimme things where they knew they had the majority votes. And so Pelosi allowed a bunch of people in the conference to vote against the bill since she knew she had it in her in, in the bag. Didn't save them. Uh, they voted against it, but most of them lost their seats. 
in November 2010. Uh, this was um, passed uh, uh, with a slightly larger margin, 220 to 213, uh, when there's only a three or four seat. I can't even remember. Nobody even seems to know how many actual votes there are and the, the, like that's 433 either there's an empty seat there's an there's one empty seat in florida elsie hastings seat so um so there may be only 434 people voting in congress right now anyway 220 to 213 and there was a story in the new york times on saturday a sort of an unbelievable stroke job for nancy pelosi like she is so great. Here's what she did for months. She had a back channel to Manchin and Biden, and Biden saying, "I love you," and and Chuck Schumer says some uses a curse word, and she doesn't like curse words, and so he says, "Nancy doesn't want me to curse," and Biden says, "She's she's so tough, but I love her so much, and she's making deals, and she's this and blah blah blah." Okay. So the whole thing is about it. She had a back channel, and that's how she was able to pass the bill because she had a back channel to Manchin. And in the story, this is the key point. The story says Manchin has been privately open to a bill larger than the $1.5 trillion bill he said, and he said in a September or October op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, was the most he would be willing to vote for, $1.5 trillion. This bill, according to the Times, is a $2.2 trillion bill. But he has indicated that he is privately open to a, to a larger bill. There's a link. That sentence in the Times is linked to another piece. So it was like, really? Manchin's indicated this? I didn't know that. That's interesting and kind of worrisome because I'm sort of hoping that Manchin will ho hold the line and kill this bill because it's a disaster, right? So I click on the link and there's another story about the bill. And nowhere in the story does it say Manchin says he is, you know, Manchin has privately told people that he is willing to, for a larger bill than the $1.5 So I don't know what that link was to, and I don't know where this detail comes from, that Manchin is, the bill is larger than it was, first the White House said it was $1.75 Then people were wandering around saying that it was $2 trillion. The Times calculated at 2.2 trillion. 2.2 trillion is almost 50% larger than the 1.5 trillion Manchin said that he would support, right? It's 50% more money, almost $750 million, right? That's not a bit larger. That's not 10% larger. That's not 1.5 to 1.75 or 1.65. Uh, ironically, the numbers are the easiest thing to fudge. Once you start talking about what those numbers actually do, the revenue they generate or how much they cost, that's when you start to struggle with how they can reconcile, how moderates in the Senate and the House can reconcile <clears throat> what was passed in the House and what the Senate wants. I mean, the Obamacare analogy is, is very interesting insofar as we only have Obamacare today because the Senate was compelled by the necessities imposed on them by Scott Brown's victory to pass whatever the House passed. That's not going to happen this time around. Senate actually gets a bite at the apple. And Joe Manchin is the, you know, the person everybody's talking about. But somehow, Kristen Sinema gets a pass, and I don't know why. The statement she put out after the passage of this bill is pretty unambiguous. Quote, so that's not the agreement the president put out in his framework several weeks ago. While I'm not going to comment on what's happening at the House at this moment, I can just refer you back to the comments I made when the president put out this framework. I'm looking forward to working with him to get this done. In other words, nothing has changed, right? Nothing. She still as opposes Joe Manchin. How are they going to get around these two senators? They got, that's, 50, that's 48 votes. You got 48 votes for this thing. Great. That'll get you a cup of coffee. And, you know, every time they say we're confident we're going to get a bill, we're confident we're going to pass it and all of that, that was what, that was what happened for three months. Remember, there's going to be a vote this week. We're going to vote today. Later today, we're going to vote. We're voting later today. Any minute we're voting, we could be voting. And here's what's interesting about what we now know about how that infrastructure bill, which is what I'm making fun of here, right? The, we're going to vote on this later today. How they knew that they were going to get a vote that they could pass, which is that they had a back channel to those 13 Republicans in the House who voted for the bill, and they knew that they would vote for the bill. So if she could just bring the bill up, Pelosi, with some assurance that the progressives wouldn't vote en masse against it, then she could pass it. And then time after time, 
she got the sense that the progressives were going to vote against it and that the Republican votes weren't going to be enough to put it over the top, and so she pulled it. Now, this goes to the Senate, and there are two senators uh, among the Democrats who were against it, which means there are 52 votes against it, by the way, not two. There's this bizarre idea that, you know, the fact that 50 Republicans will oppose it doesn't count. It only matters because there are two Democrats who are against it. Remember, the only reason we have an infrastructure bill is that 19 Republicans voted for it. So this bill doesn't require a veto-proof majority or it doesn't require a cloture over cloture of more than 60 votes because it's a reconciliation bill. So only 50 senators have to vote for it plus Kamala Harris. But the fact is right now the consensus in the Senate is against it. It's from everything we can tell. There are 52 votes against it, not two. There are 48 votes for it, not 98. And so uh, if we... I don't know who the back channel is going to be to, you know, that is going to say, no, no, it's okay. We're going to vote for it. Mansion Cinema are being, I mean, Man- Cinema's not public because she's playing a different game than Mansion. Right now, if Mansion were to say, okay, I give in to much of 90% of what's in the House bill, because she says, like, no, we're 90% of the way there. Right? So 10% of the House bill that doesn't pass in dollar terms, if you just take this the way they're talking about it, is um, is $200 billion. Right? Because the, the bill is cost $2.2 million. So 10 per, take 10% off. They're 90% of the way there. 10% off. It's $2 trillion. That's $500 billion more than Manchin says is his absolute bottom line number. Right. So what are they going to trade away? Are they going to trade away um, child care or, or paid leave, which is a really you know, expensive proposition in this bill? OK, well, then you're going to lose Bernie Sanders. Or are you going to trade away salt and then you have a revenue generator that you need to replace because then all of a sudden the bill gets a whole lot more expensive? I mean, once you start talking about the particulars, it's it becomes much more difficult than just the political prospect of, well, Democrats need to get this done. They need to get something done, get it done. But they've actually been talking about the particulars in a way that I think People who only talk about the politics of this thing aren't aren't keen to to really examine in detail because it it overcomplicates this this whole premise to the point where you can't imagine how it gets done in the first place. I mean, I think it's very hard for people on the right to understand why the left would stand in the or why not why the left because it's not Mansion Cinema not the left but why why anyone who was called a democrat wouldn't just sort of like take a take a bite and say great let's go for this um and the reason people sort of come to understand is that you know mansions in a trump's trump won his state by 40 um mansion by the way as as brett stevens points out in his colloquy with gail uh collins say in the in the new york times brett our our contributing editor um Manchin has a 60% approval rating in West Virginia. Biden has a 31% approval rating in West Virginia. Who you gonna, who's gonna, who has the whip hand there? Like, how how does it help Manchin to, to get Biden out of a hole or to, you know, yes, he is a Democrat and he is a Democratic politician. He is the Democratic politician representing this is what they need is to have a couple of people in states that they don't ordinarily win in order simply to hold the line at 50. He doesn't have any incentive to agree to this bill. But this is kind of the rogue aspect of a lot of this, right, is the Biden factor. Because so Jonathan Shade has this piece in New York Magazine about how poor Biden, he's, you know, he he ran by suppressing his progressive left flank, but then he let them kind of, you know, run riot. And and now the corporate Democrats are mad at him for letting them run riot. And, and amidst all this turmoil, it's just poor Biden, you know, always the victim of circumstance. But in fact, Biden has bungled this just as much as Nancy Pelosi has, right? I mean, the signaling he's given to certain aspects of the Democratic Party coalition has then been undermined by public statements he made that same afternoon. <laughs> I mean, so he's he's trying to kind of talk out of both sides of his mouth here. And people like Manchin, who don't actually need 
to have the president's backing in their state to win re-election just quite the opposite yeah i mean he's he's no it could be that it could be that the smart money is to say i'm the i mean first of all mansions all you know he's in his 70s so you know he could say i'm gonna vote for this because it's world changing and so i won't run next time fine you know or whatever um but what a fantastic thing to run on in 2024 in your trump state is you say those people wanted to wanted to add two trillion dollars wanted to fundamentally change the social compact in the united states to make you pay for other people's child care and well, to make it the more expensive for your yeah. yeah and to make it more expensive for your grandma to take care of your kid you know your mother to take care of your kid when you go to work to deny you a tax break, but to give it to some, you know, uh, somebody in Brookline, Massachusetts, because they have a childcare center. Uh, I stopped it. <laughs> Vote for me. Remember Manchin, what did Manchin do to win re-election in 2010? Or well, whenever it was, 2012. He shot a bullet through the cap and trade bill with a gun that most people would want you know to have removed from his hands in most democrats because no one should have a gun he is not operating on the same incentive structure as no one would say and you know who else doesn't operate on the same incentive structure as a normal person a person who doesn't have an x chair because your incentive structure is to get an X chair so you can sit down and you can say, this is what a real office chair is supposed to feel like. Can your current office chair give you a massage while you're working? My X chair can. Can your current office chair heat up or cool down? My X chair can. It's on the LMX massage and temperature regulation. We're exclusively designed and made for X chair. And once you feel the customized support of X chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar or DVL, your back will never be happy in any other chair again. Take my advice. Try X chair for yourself risk-free for 30 days. Once you realize how much better your chair should be, you'll never go back. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's letter X, the word chair, commentary.com. Or call one 844 x chair for $100 off your order. X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort. And you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. xchaircommentary.com. Um, so... <laughs> Sorry. So the Build Back Better bill remains in critical condition. Sure, it could pass. We, uh, Noah and I both listened to the National Review podcast, our friends, Charlie Cook and Michael Doherty and, 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 and Rich Lowry on Friday, very pessimistically saying that they're sure that it's going to pass and it's going to destroy America as we know it. To our credit. And I love all of these people to death, personally and professionally. But they've been saying this is going to pass in every single iteration it has existed in. And none right, of it would pass at three point five trillion. Passed. Yeah. So I, I just don't know that we. But I mean, the reason I bring this up is not to criticize them, but to say that um, there. I, I think the the idea that. Um, uh, Democrats are in this bill. What they are doing is what you know is what people call fan service. You know they are, they are. It's the greatest hits. The statements of principles. It's fan service for 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 the left. So not only is there you know like a universal childcare prescription, right? Which you would think would require experimentation, and you know, uh, let's say. Um, uh, an openness to different forms of how to do this if you're going to do it on a sort of national basis. But far from it being that, there's childcare, but it has to be unionized. Right, and so, it can't be religious. It and can't it can't be religious. We've even talked about that. Like, it's literally yeah. 75% of the industry they're trying to write out of existence. Yeah. It's just not feasible. Aside from not being feasible, it's also that um, they are by by claiming that it has to be unionized. They are, of course, raising the cost of childcare while supposedly providing a universal benefit to childcare. So that's why I say it's fan service because it's not enough to say, okay, you know what? There's going to be a universal childcare entitlement. 
This is a very big country. There are 330 million people in it. And the different states have all kinds of, you know, there are cities that have a lot of places where you can walk your kids to childcare. And if you're in a rural place, you have to drive your kids to childcare and uh, or someone's going to have to drive to you, blah, blah, blah. So you need to have lots of different pot ways of doing this. And, you know, we need to have, you know, we need to have experimentation to make sure that the implementation is proper and appropriate given the different different circumstances under which people live. Nope. No, it's going to follow democratic nonsense rules about how everything has to go under the aegis of a democratic interest group and be, be funneled through so that they can scrape off their money at the top and all of that. Okay, let me just step back and talk to you about Mac Weldon, our final advertiser today. Because, look, if you're a busy guy, you got to stop thinking about what to wear and just embrace the radically efficient Mac Weldon daily wear system. A selection of clothes rooted in smart design, made with performance fabrics and built to work together. From breathable t-shirts and polos to stylish button-ups and shorts, underwear and beyond, Mac Weldon makes it easy for you to dress for work, leisure, or play. For the ultimate lazy Sunday, their Ace sweatshorts have modern tailoring and pair perfectly with their ultra soft, ultra graded Pima tees. For weekend travels, both near and far, their silver knit polo and radius shorts are perfect high tech, highly packable combo for that holiday vacation in warmer climes. Uh, buy some time with this fall and this winter with the Mac Weldon Daily Wear System. For 20% off your first order, visit MacWeldon.com slash commentary and enter promo code commentary. That's MacWeldon, M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N dot com slash commentary, promo code commentary for 20% off Mac Weldon, radically efficient wardrobing. Um, so this event in, in, in Waukesha, Wisconsin, um, it's weird. We don't know what's going on and people, you know, jump to conclusions and all of this. There have been a couple of incidents in Europe where where cars have been used as terrorist uh, weapons, particularly in, you know, gatherings, one one in England, one in Italy or something. I can't really remember now. But there was uh, one in have, Manhattan. Well, there was the one in Man- that's right. Well, in Manhattan there was the one where the guy drove literally eight tenths of a mile smashing into bicyclists, though. That right. wasn't right. So um so it's happened before. We don't know if it's that. It may not be that and all of that. But um, your thoughts? We don't. We should be careful about this. We don't have many thoughts that are buttressed by evidence yet. Um, but there's some late-breaking news that this individual was fleeing the scene of another crime, a knifing incident that he was involved in. And it wasn't a terrorist event. It was more of a horrible accident compounded by this individual's other crime. Um, it, it seems Could hard be. to believe, given the amount of uh, people who were injured in this event, injured and killed, um, it's, it's dozens, maybe like 45. And it occurred over the course of several blocks during this parade, which suggests not that he was just going through a parade, but down a parade, um, which would complicate that motivation significantly. But this is what we're hearing presently from law enforcement. who we were talking to reporters off the record, apparently. There's also... The story and again, being careful because I don't know what what has been confirmed or what has just been um, uh, sort of speculated about that uh, he was uh, free on a thousand dollar cash bail um, for some for for a crime prior to the the stabbing incident as well. And his uh, reporters who've sort of started searching uh, his name and other criminal databases turned up, you know, he's a registered sex offender in Nevada. He he has a pretty long rap sheet. Uh, He's posted uh, on social media in support of Black Lives Matter. Uh, He's, you know, had some pretty questionable statements uh, over the years that that were captured on social media, videos of him on social media that that have now are starting to come down, but that people have sort of found in the immediate aftermath. Again, this is the person who was arrested after the event. And, and uh, but I, as far as I know, there aren't, you know, charges. There's, we don't know all the details, but th- this one individual who they took into custody and then declared, we've got, you know, there's no, we're no longer looking for other suspects. This is his, his he has a pretty significant criminal rap sheet. Look, let's talk uh, talkless, as, 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 as we say. When, when people heard this, you know that both the right and the left immediately said it's a white supremacist. Both sides, by the way, in some sense. In other words, like the people on the right said, oh, my God, something happened. 
you know, this is like a Kyle Rittenhouse. Something happened in the wake of Kyle Rittenhouse and some lunatic did this. And the left was slavering to believe that that was the case, even though uh, th- this is just a this is uh, my interpretation of what I was trying to view in the interstices of the immediate uh, commentary uh, or the or or the reverse, which is like, oh, God, you know, the. Rittenhouse verdict was so painful, so horrifying, so monstrous, so nightmarish that somebody just cracked. Somebody cracked in his rage and upset and just felt like he had to do something. These would be the kinds of caricatured views um, that are one of the reasons that social media should not exist. I mean, these insta responses to events that you know nothing about. But we're now all conditioned to have these responses and you go, oh, no, you know, oh, my God, oh, no, uh, it's either going to look bad for me, it's going to make me look bad, or, oh, great, it's going to make those guys look so bad, you know? It's a very weird, imp- it's a, you know, and this is this sort of like owning the libs, owning the cons, you know, nothing is its own thing. That's what I said about the Rittenhouse verdict, you know, that that people think that it's okay to treat you know an individual incident as though it is symbolic of the nation as a whole you know as opposed to something very individual and very specific and so this you know this this may be the same well I mean, wh- who, whatever yeah. whatever the truth of this of the last night's horror is and i we don't know what it is um it will be politicized somehow right it will it will divide the country I mean, that may not be a prominent uh, feature, but but there there will be a mode of interpretation whereby if you are somewhere on the right, you look at it this way. And if you are somewhere on the left, you look at it in the opposite way. And I don't know yet how that's what realms of of our um, politicization this is going to fall into. But it but it will happen because everything must be politicized. Welcome to the crushing morosity. <laughs> we we conclude. Uh, uh, we the four of us had 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 dinner last night for the first time in I uh, years, a couple of you know, it's really since the since the pandemic, and we were sitting having a really good time, and then by the end, we were just everything we were saying was ending with the "our civilization is finished," you know. I uh, so. Uh, I apologize. Apparently, this is what's going to happen if we get together for more than forty-five minutes. So, you know, wait—I do have to defend okay. us and say our our crushingly morose dessert conversation uh, by the end of the meal was not as bad as the next table upon which we we were eavesdropping, and they were just discussing medical ailments. So that was far more depressing. So we were yes. we well, were we not quite that. that bad. We could do that <laughs> if you want to hear about my torn meniscuses and my uh, my plantar fasciitis and my Achilles tendonitis. I will be really happy to fill you in just to make it even worse. Um, I do want to congratulate Christine, however. I'm gonna I'm gonna conclude on this note. Christine passed some, you know, basically Mr. Miyagi uh supervised from Japan uh, uh effort at getting a triple black belt. <laughs> no, 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 Nidon, second degree black belt. Excuse me, a second degree Nidon black belt in Aikido and uh and uh had her test on on, on Saturday and uh and uh it apparently went went well. So it was fun. um uh it and was, now it was she all... gets an international pass that the you know the global shogunate has to recognize and allows her to bypass traditional like, like it's the sort of yeah. stuff you see in ninja the movies passport. where all of a sudden the door, the airport yeah. door opens up. That's right. I wish ninjas appear to guide me to my gate. Right. Well, I I will tell you. He's drinking sake. It sounds very, very luxurious. (laughs) So that, so that I'll I'll conclude with this anecdote, which is that, uh, so we finished dinner. uh, We were, um, it was like nine 30 or something. And uh, Christine's hotel was like three blocks from the restaurant night to go get a cab home. And so I said, I'll walk you to your hotel. Cause you know, it's very sketchy around here. And we're walking, and then I realize, like, she doesn't need me to protect her from sketchiness. Like, I need her to protect me from sketchiness. Just, you know, she's like the double, she's the second degree, what is it again? 
It's a second degree black belt. Second degree black belt. Like I, you know, I once <laughs> got into a fist fight when I was 15 in the upper yard of the Columbia Grammar and Preparatory School. And that is pretty much the extent of my physical encounters with other people. So, um, you know, she should have walked me home because, <laughs> you know, uh, there, there was some uh, there was some mismatch. There was some imbalance here. Fundamental chivalric <laughs> imbalance going on. Um and so I'm just saying, if you ever need uh, protection on your way home, I'm happy to be a ninja escort for anyone who needs it. Yes, anytime. <laughs> Thank Wait, you. Wait, so that much. sounds bad. <laughs> yeah. Use my ninja. <laughs> use use her ninja abilities. There we go. Yeah. To protect the yeah. the. Uh, yeah. What you really need to do board. now is to get into the nunchucks. That's the, that's... Uh, that's a show off weapon. It's a show off. Okay. <laughs> I love a good show off weapon. Anyway. So we'll be back tomorrow to share with you highlights of our of our thrilling evening later tonight. So for Abe, Christina, Noam, John Podhoritz, keep the candle burning. <laughs>